Hey everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here. Welcome to another China History Podcast, episode 130 for you today. CBC, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, ran a piece once called The Intermittently True Adventures of Moisha Tugun Cohn. Paula Simons wrote the story. Moisha Cohn was one of thousands and thousands of foreigners who went to China in the 1920s and got to witness that historic period in Republican China and even play a few bit parts. Up until the curtain came down on those times in 1949, Morris Abraham Cohn got to see a fair amount of history that we've only read about in books. So we're going to relive those wild and crazy times of the 1920s and 30s in China. The places he operated out of and where his story was written were Saskatoon, Edmonton, Calgary, Hong Kong, Guangzhou, Shanghai, London, and Manchester. I guess you could call him a hustler, a salesman, and a con man. We use the term roller coaster to describe someone's life, ups and downs, scary moments. Morris Cohn, he truly had such a life. Morris Cohn had his ups and downs. He'd spent time in prisons and Japanese POW detention camp, residential slums. He had plenty of lonely nights and flop houses living on the Canadian prairie. When times were good, he stayed in the finest hotels wherever he traveled, lived high on the hog and threw lavish dinner parties and wined and dined visiting guests and dignitaries. He wasn't somebody who was written in the history books, but he certainly had an interesting China story. And we'll look at his particular bond that he had with the Chinese people. He was an unlikely soul who you'd expect to fall in love with China, the culture, and the people. But he did. During my nine-year stretch in Hong Kong, I knew guys like Morris Cohn. These were old expats who... Well, no one knew what they actually did for a living, but they had been there forever and had become permanent fixtures that you always saw at some of the joints around town. Morris Cohn was one such character. Morris Cohn, if you haven't guessed it already, was a Jew. He was born in a Polish shtetl, one of the real poor ones. His family of eight brothers and sisters and his parents were downtrodden Eastern European Jews who were chased out of their Polish village in Radzinov, where he was born on August 3rd, 1887, the year of the pig. Same as me. They fled the pogroms and made their way to London. The Mielchins family, that was his real surname, they were one of the lucky ones. Those like the Mielchins who didn't get out of Radzinov in time ended up in Treblinka and Auschwitz. He emigrated to England as a boy, lived a hard life on the streets. He eschewed study and at an early age embraced a life of lying, cheating, fighting, being a two-bit con man, and he hustled his whole life to earn as much as he could. And like so many others, eh, he didn't know what saving for a rainy day meant. If he made a thousand bucks, he spent a thousand. He was generous with those he loved and trusted or wanted to impress and whose acceptance he craved. His family ended up in the Whitechapel district in East London. Jack the Ripper had been operating out of that area around the same time the Coens showed up, or maybe it was on the tail end of his career. Morris's father, Joseph, knew when he arrived in England he'd better 86 that Mialchen surname, and he settled on Cohen for the new family name. 
As a young boy, the Cone family lived at 68 Umberston Street in St. George's in the east part of London, a ten-minute walk to the Jack the Ripper Museum. Back then, this area was like the Lower East Side in New York, in a way, a Jewish ghetto of sorts. Joseph Cohn got into the Schmata business, which was a classic Yiddish stock and trade. Plenty of the locals in London really looked down on these newly arriving Jews in the same way Americans in California looked at the Chinese in the 1850s and 60s. They were strange, non-conforming, stuck together, depressed working wages, and stole jobs. From an early age, Moisha Cohn wasn't destined to grow up to be a good-looking sort. When he started school in 1896, he was a stumpy kid with a big head and a mischievous look about him, a face only a mother could love. He found some success as a child boxer. They called him Fat Moisha. Nothing much to say here except fighting and knocking people's lights out were among the skills acquired by Morris Cohn growing up where he did. In 1900, just shy of his bar mitzvah, he got thrown into a reform school for five years. He was a constant troublemaker and wore out his welcome with everyone. He wasn't what you'd call a particularly observant Jew. He had nothing to show for himself academically. He wasn't keen to learn any particular trade. In July 1905, around the time of his 18th birthday, his father, Joseph Cohen, had to figure out something to do with his son. Back in those days, turn of the century, early 1900s, one of the options for people in England with few options was to send your youngin to Canada or to the U.S. Australia was another choice. Joseph Cohen knew someone in Wapella, southeast Saskatchewan. Back then, it was called the Northwest Territory. So off to Canada, Morris Cohn went. He sailed from the port of Liverpool and arrived in Quebec without incident. He made his way to Winnipeg and from there to Wapella, 400 kilometers west. Wapella, population 354. This was not like anything Morris Cohn was used to. The overpopulated slums of Whitechapel and the high-density living was nothing at all like living out on the plain. Nothing at all. 18-year-old Morris began his career as a farmhand, working for a guy named Robert Nicholson. He made $150 a year, plus room and board, aspiring to bump that up to $3 a day if he could find a way. Morris Cohen was a lifelong card cheat. He knew every trick in the book about how to stack the deck and mark cards and whatever else there was that allowed him to diminish his gambling risk. This was one of his defining character traits throughout his life, and he learned it all in Wapella from a ne'er-do-well who also worked the same farm. He moved on to bigger and better things, heading to the southeast, making a dollar a day at a brick kiln in Verdun and Manitoba. That kind of work was backbreaking and offered little reward in terms of compensation. Morris hung in there till 1907, and now, 20 years old, he ended up in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. He found work as a carnival barker for the Greater Norris and Rose Circus. There, Morris Cohn continued his seat-of-the-pants education in the art of the scam. The circus life isn't for everyone, and it wasn't for Morris either. He didn't last long, and when the wagon trains all pulled away from Winnipeg, 
Morris Cohn decided to remain. Winnipeg, 1907, was awash with immigrants, and the dynamic was such that it had this tremendous boomtown atmosphere. Morris Cohn thrived in this kind of an environment and in no time at all got himself busted and convicted for pimping for a minor and got sent away for six months in a six-by-eleven-foot cell. Eh, he survived it. Any other man in Morris Cohn's similar circumstances, after the reform school in England, the prison time, the harshness of his life up till then, might have just given up or turned to drink or drugs, but not Morris Cohn. He heard there was money to be made in Saskatoon real estate, so off he went. Land that sold for $900 in 1905 was going for 16000 by the end of 1907. Morris quickly got the lay of the land and proceeded to make a small killing. Here is where Morris Abraham Cohn met the man who served as the catalyst that led to this adventure he ended up having. After he pulled into town, and being the type of man that he was and all, he made his way to a gambling den operated by one of the local businessmen, a 52-year-old Cantonese named Mr. Ma Sam. One of his joints was called the Alberta Restaurant at 111 20th Street West in Saskatoon. Morris became a regular there in no time at all and earned his daily bread teaming up with Ma Sam, cheating suckers at cards. Around this time, Morris Cohn was given his Chinese name, Ma Kun. There in Saskatoon, the watershed moment of his life happened. You know how it is when something unexpected and random happens, and from that one moment in time, a whole long life experience followed? Well, this was one of those things. One day, Morris walked into the Alberta right at the moment when one of the local thugs was shaking down Ma Sam and robbing him. Morris took in the situation like he used to do back in Poland when the Jew haters used to try and push him or his siblings around. He approached the tough guy, had a few words with him, and proceeded to beat the you-know-what out of the guy and threw him out the door. You see, the Chinese in Saskatoon, well, they were in the same boat as their buddies down in San Francisco. When the white man wanted to come down hard on them, if they knew what was good for them, the Chinese immigrant had to learn to just put up with it. No one was on their side. Neither the local people, nor the law. So when Morris Cohn came to Ma Sam's rescue on that fateful day, it had a particular resonance inside the Chinese community in Saskatoon. In the wake of this incident, the local Chinese embraced Cone and sort of adopted him into their community after that. Ma Sam was Morris Cone's muse, so to speak. He indoctrinated Morris on all the hell China had gone through the past hundred years and that these days were coming to an end. These were the final years of the Qing dynasty. Ma Sam was a follower of Sun Yat-sen. He had bought into the revolution completely and passed all this information on to Morris Cohn. Ma told him all about Sun's story and how, after 21 centuries, he was trying to transform China into a republic. In 1905, the Hui was cobbled together and Ma Sam was a member of the local branch. Morris Cohn later recalled, quote, I didn't quite swallow all he told me, but it stirred my imagination. I was young enough to like excitement, and his talk of soldiering and conspiracy and revolution was exciting. 
I'd known poverty myself and what persecution meant from things I heard my parents say, and though I'd never seen China, I could guess that the life of the underdog would be a whole lot worse there than it was in the white man's world. End quote. It didn't take long before Morris Cohn became a person of interest to the police and was rounded up regularly whenever the usual suspects came under suspicion. His thieving and cheating ways got him into trouble from time to time. The local fuzz first tried to use the law to get him to leave, but when he defied them and hung around, he ended up in prison 90 minutes north of Saskatoon in a town called Prince Albert. There he suffered through a year of hard labor. The authorities came down hard on Ma Sam, too, for his gambling den, and he ended up doing some time at the same prison as Morris Cone. When Morris was released, he went straight to Ma's joint. This was in September 1911. Morris was doing hard time when Sun Yat-sen made his North American fundraising tour. The following month, the Wuchang Uprising happened and it was farewell to the Qing dynasty. Word got around Saskatoon and in surrounding Chinese communities about how Morris Cohn had stood up for Ma Sam and was considered a friend of the Chinese, and they accorded him the honor of being welcomed as a member of the Tongmeng Hui. And afterwards, he became a regular fixture at all the places that Chinese gathered. So Morris Cohn moved up to Calgary next, stayed a while until the local authorities, tired of his antics, and showed him the door. And this is what led him to the promised land, to Edmonton in Alberta. I heard the weather's good there in the fall. In Edmonton, it didn't take long for Cohn to gravitate to the Chinese areas and use his Tongmenghui membership and relationships to get past the door. These were the years just leading up to World War I there was a major land boom going on up in Edmonton. This is where Morris Cohn really hit the big time. He was making $1,000 a week and 12.5% commission on sales. He was completely in his element, dealing in the seamy underside of Edmonton land speculation. In between selling worthless land at inflated prices, he continued to grow his criminal record. Nothing serious. Gambling, mostly. But then something began to happen. Around Edmonton, the word started to spread that this guy, Morris Cohn, had the inside track on the Chinese and was the perfect conduit for info or if you wanted to get word to the Chinese community or you had a business proposition or whatever. And to a certain extent, this may have been true, but regardless of his importance to the Edmonton Chinese community, when the press followed up with him or someone stopped him on the street about something or other connected to the local Chinese, Morris would make it sound as if he was practically one of them, and he'd exaggerate his connections and his influence and insider knowledge. But all he was doing was creating the myth of the secretly influential and consummate insider amongst the Chinese, a myth that he carried in his back pocket for the remainder of his days. In 1913, Morris was 26 years old and doing fantastic in Edmonton. But when the market started to show signs of slowing, his real estate company sent their star salesman to Europe to go sell Edmonton real estate out there. This was Morris Cohn's first time back in Europe since he left Liverpool in 1905, and on the continent since his family got chased out of Poland. The prodigal son returned. This was a happy and tearful family reunion. 
Morris was reunited with his parents, Joseph and Scheindel, and with all his brothers and sisters. He was what you'd call a family man, but in his case, he rarely ever saw his family. He completely overwhelmed them with his success and the wealth he had amassed, showing up with gifts that no one could believe. Then he got his family out of their slum and moved them to some nicer digs. Everything went great, and like he would do in the decades to come, after he had showered his relatives with gifts and recounted all the overblown details of his life on the Canadian plane, Morris Cohn would leave town, and then no one would see him for a very long time. Moisha, he never had his own kids, so he was a particular soft touch when it came to children. He was like this dream relative that you could always count on for the most extravagant gifts. Whenever Uncle Morris came to town, it was better than Christmas, or better than Hanukkah in his case. He carried out his sales in Belgium and then headed back to Edmonton. The market that he had done so well in was starting to show signs of a bubble, and there was a whiff of something foul about to happen. Once some Chinese even took Morris Cohn to court for misrepresenting himself in a land deal. The only reason Morris wasn't convicted was, well, because the courts always, in these kinds of cases, as a matter of course, ruled in favor of the whiter party. But trouble followed Morris Cohn wherever he went. A lot of people who knew him or knew of him sort of kept their distance. He headed back to Edmonton and, through skill and good fortune, managed to not get convicted for any of the felonious activities that he engaged in on a habitual basis. When 1914 came around, the economy in Canada had pretty much hit the skids. Two years later, in 1916, 29 years old, Morris Cohn enlisted in the Army and fought with the 218th Overseas Battalion, the Canadian Irish Guards. He was an acting sergeant, and this battalion was made up of soldiers from 14 nations, and then they hooked up with another group to form the 8th Battalion of the Canadian Railway Troops. En route to Europe to fight in the Great War, Morris got to stop in Blighty and visit his family again. He ended up having too good of a time in London and got himself a dose of the clap that messed him up but good later on. Then he was transported to Belgium and got to witness for himself the whole chamber of horrors of World War I. His role in the war was building railways. Many of the 190,000 Chinese who served valiantly in the labor corps, who were shipped off to Europe to assist in the war effort, were also engaged in constructing railroads. And Morris naturally gravitated towards them and sympathized with their plight. If you're interested, I did an episode on the Chinese Labor Corps of World War I. That was uh, CHP episode 207. Most of 1918, Morris Cohn spent recovering from complications from his gonorrhea. He was shipped off to a medical facility in Birmingham, where he stayed till November 1918. When he got shipped back to the continent, the war was already over. So Morris Cohn made his way back to Britain after his usual lack of discipline and lousy behavior got the best of him. He was demoted to sapper and sent to a base in Wales reserved mostly for troublemakers. By February 1919, Morris Cohn was back in Canada. Despite the failure of respectably and heroically performing his military duty, Morris talked up his time spent in Europe in such a way as to make people believe he personally defeated the Kaiser. 
wildly exaggerating his personal contributions. Hey, who could check these stories? As far as building on his myth was concerned, these couple years were going to prove invaluable. And like I said, who was going to carry out any due diligence to see what actually happened? Despite his sorry conduct as a soldier, he did manage an honorable discharge on March 17, 1919. So after Morris Cohn made his way back to Edmonton, he immediately reunited with his old Chinatown pals. He tried to get back into the real estate business, but the good times had already moved on to somewhere else. All his savings from the pre-war boom were, of course, long spent. Things weren't looking too good. He was constantly in trouble for one kind of violation or another, again, usually involving gambling. Throughout his troubles... Morris Cohn always hung out with his Chinese friends and learned more about what was going on back in the old country. He learned the politics and stayed active in the China Nationalist League there. He very neatly insinuated himself into their world. Being a white guy and all, I suppose they welcomed him and found all kinds of uses in having him around. Let's face it, back in those days, not many Westerners were trying to cozy up to the Chinese and be their friends. Just as in California in the 1850s onward, once things really went south in Edmonton and people were hurting, the Chinese were the first scapegoats to suffer. But Morris Cohn became a tireless advocate for the Chinese in Canada, and whenever he was in a position to help them out, that's what he did. These years, right after the Great War, weren't good at all for Morris Cohn. He couldn't stay out of trouble, and all the money he tried to make was of the dishonest kind. His reputation amongst the local law enforcement people was well known, and by the middle of 1922, things were getting too hot in Edmonton for Morris. He was being watched, and that put a major crimp in his thieving, gambling, and scamming ways. He was 35 years old. Up till now, he had wasted his life, living a life of crime. To conform went against everything Morris Cohn believed in. Since arriving in Canada, he had done things his way, and he didn't care if it was legal or not, and he fleeced plenty of innocent people along the way. He didn't have any particular skills or aspirations that any normal person might have. So in short, he had nothing. He was broke. The economy in Canada was terrible. There were no jobs that he was qualified to do. And the Edmonton police had turned up the heat on Morris Cohn so badly, he had to leave. And so he went to China. Now, I'm sure he spoke a few words of Cantonese that he picked up along the way, but he was no China scholar, and he certainly didn't speak Chinese. The Chinese guys that he knew in Saskatoon, Edmonton, Calgary, and Winnipeg, they all must have saw in this guy someone who sympathized with them and who probably had all kinds of odd uses. So these two society rejects, Morris Cohn and his various misfit Chinese brothers, they bonded. He had learned China politics from Ma Sam and who was who inside the organization. As I said, he had been invited to join the Tongmenghui that, in August 1912, was folded into a new party called the KMT, the Kuomintang. The thought of Heading off to China had crossed Morris Cohn's mind more than once. He had again reached one of those several crossroads in his life. November 1922, 
No prospects, no nothing. An opportunity came, he took it. Morris Cohn sailed to China with someone surnamed Hong. Here's where Sun Yat-sen enters the picture. Sun Yat-sen had passed through Edmonton, but the two had never met. In his memoir, Morris made a big deal about serving his son's bodyguard whilst he was in Canada, but the reality was he was in prison when Sun passed through. But thanks to Cohn's association with the Nationalist supporters in Canada, Sun knew who he was, and the two had it corresponded by letter. So when Sun's people learned Morris Cohn was coming to China, and that he was coming to see them, in fact, they asked him to help them out with something. And from this favor they asked of him, an entire career was born. Morris Cohn was tasked with sourcing a railroad contractor in North America who could do a turnkey job building a line between Canton and Hanko. Morris Cohn did the necessary humping and name-dropping, and where you know it, he actually lined up a firm to bid on the job. The contractor handed off their bid to Morris, and he packed it away for safekeeping. He took a train, again with this Mr. Hong, to Vancouver, and on November 23, 1922, he sailed west to China and arrived in Shanghai on December 12th. With this contract in hand and eight guns packed in a suitcase, Cohn's hidden agenda was to leverage this railroad contract into something that amounted to a full-time line of work within Sun Yat-sen's organization. As soon as he alighted in Shanghai, Cohn made his way right to the Astor House Hotel in the International Settlement and began doing what he'd pretty much do for the next four decades. He worked the lobby. That was... This was his element. This was the arena where he knew he could shine and amount to something. The Astor House, by the way, was the first international-style modern hotel ever built in China. This structure went up in 1846, and it was already a grand 76-year-old establishment when Morris Cohn started hanging around the lobby. Back then, and still today, bars and lounges and hotel lobbies are a common place to meet customers and business partners. Morris Cohn was not shy, let's just say that. He'd park himself somewhere in the bar, start a tab, and he'd chat up whoever he thought might be interesting in some way. He was always trying to get in on any deal he could and would name drop mercilessly to show he was somebody. Morris Cohn never lost his Cockney accent, and he had that look of a rogue about him. Some were turned off by his style, but many were not. And from his days, hanging out with his Chinese mates back in Canada, he knew enough about what was happening in China to sound halfway intelligent. But from meeting Cohen, most any gentleman of quality knew right away that he was low-born, and whatever education he possessed, he learned it on the streets of somewhere. Morris Cohn didn't waste any time. Through a Russian-Jewish emigre named George Sokolsky, he worked at Sun Yat-sen's paper, the Shanghai Gazette, and he got to meet the great man and the woman he would serve till the end of his days, Song Ching Ling, known also as Madame Sun Yat-sen. With railroad contract in hand, Cohn went to meet Sun and was just bowled over. He knew right away that he'd have no trouble dedicating his life to Sun and his cause. They discussed the details of the contract, and after finding all in order, Cohn let his people know it was a go, and they dispatched a couple reps to Shanghai to ink the deal. Just like the Lufthansa heist did for Henry Hill and Goodfellas, 
This railroad deal made Morris Cone. He got to bask in quite a bit of shine. He got to bask in quite a bit of shine, and he tried to parlay this deal and his closeness to Sun as a way to puff himself up in front of other KMT people he came in contact with. How he did it, we'll never know, but for whatever reason, the Guofu himself, the father of modern China, gave the okay to allow Morris Cohn into his inner circle. And from that point on, end of December 1922, Morris Cohn carried a business card that read, Morris A. Cohn, ADC to Sun Yat-sen. ADC meaning aide-de-camp. Cohn served as a bodyguard to Sun Yat-sen, but mostly you could describe him as a gopher at large. And of course, anything that required mixing with the Brits, Yanks, or other Westerners, Sun would often send Cohn to do the dirty work. February 15, 1923, Sun took a trip to Hong Kong. By now, Sun was like a rock star and had the support of a wide swath of people, mostly in the South. He was treated like rock and roll royalty, and wherever Sun Yat-sen went, there was his Fu Guan, Morris A. Cohn. A Fu Guan was a bodyguard, or aide-de-camp. He did all the things you'd expect of a bodyguard. He cased joints, scanned crowds, and kept anyone suspicious as far away from his boss as possible. Cohen and his fellow bodyguards protected not only Sun Yat-sen, but Song Ching Ling as well. He was already quite a character, but now Morris Cohn really went all out to reinvent himself. His uniform was always the same, a light-colored suit and tie and a sun helmet. He looked like a tough guy not to be messed with. He was already handy with a gun and taught his fellow bodyguards how to properly use one and how to fight. The number of bodyguards slowly rose from a handful to more than 200. By March 23, 1923, Sun had been made head of the military government based in the South. Sun's goal was to unite China and do away with these warlords, mostly in the north and central part of China, but also in the south. If you're interested, I did a whole 10-part series on the history of the warlords from 1916 to 1928, and I invite you to go check that out. People called on Sun Yat-sen all day and night, and Cohen was constantly kept busy being in the middle of this. Not only Chinese called on Sun, Westerners as well. They too sought him out. Just in case he ended up on top, people knew they had to hedge their bets and keep a dialogue open with Sun's Kuomintang government. Travel writer Harry A. Frank wrote of these days, quote, Rarely during our months in Canton was the Generalissimo seen in semi-public without Mrs. Sun II at his side and the belligerent, or at least highly protective, face of Mr. Cohn in the immediate background. When we had the honor one Sunday morning to call upon Dr. Sun at his cement factory headquarters and residence, his Canadian shadow, tucked into a corner of the stairway at the entrance to Dr. Sun's study, scrutinized not only me, but my wife as if to make sure that we did not come to wreak mischief on his chief. End quote. 1920s and 1930s were rough times in China. A lot of things were happening, and still, since 1911... Everything was still trying to get sorted out about who was going to be in charge now that the Qing dynasty was gone. Sun's rival government in the south was a constant target of these warlords. So being a bodyguard for Sun Yat-sen 
was pretty serious work, and there were plenty of people who wanted to rub the revolutionary leader out. Sun was well protected, but so were many political leaders that ended up getting assassinated. Moisha didn't have to wait too long, and during one of these attempts to kill Sun Yat-sen, he and his fellow bodyguards exchanged gunfire with the would-be assassins. Morris ended up getting shot in his left arm. It was only a flesh wound, and he survived it okay. But like the time he stood up for Ma Sam back in Canada, this particular attempt became another seminal moment in Moisha's life. Morris Cohn said later on about this incident, quote, The bullet that caught me in the left arm had made me think. Supposing it had been my right arm, and I carried my gun that side, I'd not have been able to use it. As soon as we got back to Canton, I got me a second gun, another Smith & Wesson revolver, and I packed it handy by my left hand. I practiced drawing and soon found that I was pretty well ambidextrous. One gun came out as quick as the other. End quote. And with that, the legend was born, and he became known around town as Two-Gun Cohen, the guy who packed a forty-five in one shoulder holster and another forty-five on his hip. His salary was a few hundred Chinese dollars as Sun Yat-sen's aide-de-camp, and you can bet that as soon as his pockets were full, he blew everything on good food, good drink, and entertainment, and whatever was left over was gambled away. This was not just some job. Morris Tugun Khan truly was dedicated to Sun Yat-sen, and he worshipped the man, and by extension Song Ching-ling as well. He admired how Sun wasn't the kind of leader who locked himself up in his compound and tried to govern from behind closed doors. Sun Yat-sen really was a man of the people, and always did these walkabouts where he'd mingle with the masses and demonstrate a genuine concern for their problems. There were times when people would approach Sun Yat-sen and mention some petty problem of theirs, and Sun knew it might sound petty, but the impact on the person was profound. And Sun would tell one of his aides to go take care of it, usually by offering the person whatever pitiful amount of money it took to resolve their problem. He'd use money from his own pocket. And Sun, he was the real deal, and Morris Cohn took his job seriously when it came to protecting him. 1923 and into 1924, things were not looking promising for Sun's government. Aside from the fact that they were broke and had no tax revenue coming in, they couldn't get the support or recognition of the Western powers. The only ones showing interest in Sun were the Soviets. The Comintern sent Michael Borodin to the south of China. He began having a dialogue with Sun about Soviet support for his vision of China. With things looking as bad as they were and with so little international support, Sun, in early 1924, was no doubt happy to have at least one major power talking to him. This is the time when Jiang Kai-shek enters the scene. With Borodin's help, the Wampoa Military Academy was created in May 1924, and Jiang was put in charge. His number two at the academy, of course, was Zhou Enlai. As Sun's fame and reputation continued to grow around the world, Morris Cohn did his best to fuel the myth of the amazing two-gun Cohn. He did nothing to stop crazy rumors that exaggerated his role and importance. He knew when to talk and when to act coy and deny certain rumors. And people who didn't know any better would further spread these stories. And Morris Cohn knew he was onto a good thing and that this whole business of being one of Sun Yat-sen's gang 
was going to lead to a very lucrative career. It didn't take long before word reached Edmonton, and everyone learned that their hometown hero was playing a major role in Republican-era Chinese politics. One rumor was more outlandish than the next, and these rumors even made it to the streets of Edmonton that Cohen was an important general and was put in charge of all troops under Sun's control. Moisha really began to go overboard as far as his sense of self-importance and with all his boasting and over-the-top exaggerations about his rank inside Sun's camp. He never knew when to shut up. Finally, he had gone too far, and his words and actions were starting to reflect badly on Sun Yat-sen. Someone finally had to go to Sun and whispered in his ear that Morris Cohen and his antics were making them look bad. And so in October 1924, Sun Yat-sen gave Morris the good old pink slip, and he was dismissed. But if there was one gift Morris Cohen had, it was an ability to talk his way out of a predicament. He had been doing it his whole life with policemen, judges, gambling collectors, accusers, and now with Sun Yat-sen. He managed to talk his way back into Sun's good graces and swore on a stack of Bibles that from now on, he was going to keep his mouth shut. So he was back serving Sun, and on November 12, 1924, he accompanied Sun and his entourage up north to negotiate with the warlords about the unification of the country. But Morris Cohen never made it to the north. When he got as far as Shanghai, he was sent on a mission to Canada to assist in the procurement of weapons and ammunition. Sun went on to Beijing, arriving on the last day of the year in 1924. The father of modern China had only three more months to live. Morris Cohn arrived in Vancouver and proceeded to embellish the myth and preened in front of the hometown crowd about his time spent so far in China. He went ahead and self-styled himself as a general. By the time he pulled into Edmonton, he was quite a celebrity. Someone wrote of Cohn's visit, quote, Back in Edmonton for a short visit to old friends here after more than two years in the storm centers of China, where he was a prominent figure in the government of the Republic, Morris Abraham Cohn, now bearing the title of general and aide-de-camp to President Sun Yat-sen, arrived in the city this morning. General Cohn shows little physical change since he left the city in the fall of 1922. The right-hand man of the President of the South China Republic, when seen by the journal, was reticent in discussing conditions in the Far East, pointing out that it would be improper for him in his official position to discuss the political affairs of China. You could say this, however, he told the journal, that conditions when I left were very favorable for a unification of the different political forces of the country. A conference was being arranged, and the feeling was very hopeful that it would result in success. At present, I am not in a position to give any further information on the situation. He will remain in Canada about two months, but the diplomatic object of his visit remains a secret. The only word that comes from the lips of the envoy of the Chinese Republic is that he is here to visit old friends and to enjoy a rest after the labors of the past two years. End quote. Morris Cohn's meal ticket, unfortunately, wasn't long for this world, and tragically for China, perhaps. Sun Yat-sen died at just about the worst possible time. March 12, 1925. Sun Yat-sen only lived for 58 years. 
As you can imagine, this was also quite a tragedy for Morris Cohn. He returned to China at once to assess the situation. Cohen later wrote, quote, It was the middle of March when I heard of his death. I took the next ship for China, and on that passage, I played no poker. I spent no time in a bar, and in fact, I scarcely spoke to a soul on board. I slept badly, too, and that's something that has never happened to me before or since. When I met Madam Sun, I just burst into tears. The bottom had dropped out of my world, and I still felt lost. We left Dr. Sun in the western hills, and for a while I felt that I'd left the best part of myself there, too. I just mooned about and thought how empty my life was now and how little I realized my luck when he was still alive. End quote. Morris Abraham Cohn had to figure out some way to stay relevant within the KMT organization. One thing he had going for him was that anyone who knew Cohn was very well aware of his dedication and loyalty to Sun Yat-sen and the cause for which he fought for. There was never any doubt about the allegiance he showed not only for Sun and Madam Sun, but for the KMT as well. A foreigner like Cohn had his uses, and despite what many in Sun's organization felt about him and his antics, they still kept him close and continued to utilize him as an intermediary with various Western people. And Morris Cohn knew that as long as he was able to remain in this game and be a player, there were plenty more 5% commissions to be earned. The Canadians, British, and Americans weren't as easy to fool as the Chinese. They were extremely wary of Cohn and knew all about his well-deserved reputation as a braggart and exaggerator of his prominence in the KMT. One person said of Cohn he was, quote, an uneducated, pushy Jew with a low-class accent from a poor family, end quote. And in many ways, Morris Cohn had become a caricature of himself. So Morris Cohn, feeling the negative vibes, tried to undo the damage and attempted to get that respectability that he craved so badly. So, with his meal tickets on Yat-sen now gone, Morris had to get on someone's payroll fast or else he'd be stuck either slumming it or perhaps even be forced to return to Canada. But thanks to the historic and game-changing turn of events and Cohen's well-known association with Sun Yat-sen and his inner circle, not to mention being in the right place at the right time, Morris Cohn's profile as the consummate insider to China politics was going to be greatly enhanced. You had, as a response to the May 30th movement, a general strike in not only Guangzhou, but in Hong Kong as well. This lasted for 16 months, from June 1925 to October 1926. You remember the May 30th incident? May 30th, 1925 in Shanghai? Troops under the British opened fire into a crowd of Chinese protesters and killed nine and wounded many others. Among other things... This resulted in a 16-month-long strike, and a massive wedge was pounded in between the local Chinese and the foreign imperialists. This Shenggang Dapagong, or Canton Hong Kong strike of 1925-26, shook the economic foundations of Hong Kong. The British government needed to bail the colony out with loans. This May 30th movement was an early attempt by the four-year-old Chinese Communist Party to flex their muscles and test out their efforts at organizing on a mass scale. The strike had quite an impact on Canton. 
It was big news, and the foreign business interests were getting clobbered. Morris Cohen, through his access to TV Song and Chan Yo-ren, a.k.a. Eugene Chun, was able to keep the illusion alive of his importance inside the KMT government in Canton. Eugene Chun, by the way, was a colorful character from 1920s Chinese history. He was essentially Sun Yat-sen's foreign minister and carried out diplomacy on behalf of the rival government in the South. More about him, perhaps, some other time? You know, even though only a gopher inside the organization, Morris Cohn was still, nonetheless, in the inner circle. And he knew all these historic names inside the KMT. He wasn't making this up. He came and went and carried messages and acted in the usual intermediary role. When the strike petered out in October 1926, Morris wrote later, quote, I feel that my efforts in obtaining the unconditional calling off of the strike and boycott had done a little good. I might state that I was present at the conference where I had been detailed by the Chinese government to give them protection. End quote. 1926 and into 1927... Cohn did much to consolidate his role as the Western intermediary of choice to the Southern leadership in general and T.V. Song in particular. T.V. Song had made Morris head of security at the new Central Bank of China in Shanghai. He was little more than an errand boy and sort of a Brinks guard, but he did take his job seriously. These were the kind of things he did within the Song inner circles. And because he was so close to all the action all the time... People who didn't know any better misconstrued his exact role and importance inside the organization. So word on the street was that Morris Cohn was quietly working with all the contending parties and acting in the role of go-between. Things were leading up to a crescendo, which happened, as we all know from past episodes, on April 12, 1927. Chiang Kai-shek let loose the Shanghai Massacre and the subsequent White Terror. Song Qingling fled to Moscow. The KMT began to fracture, and the power centers in Nanjing, led by Chiang Kai-shek and those in Guangzhou, who Morris Cohn was friendly with, had moved their rival government from Canton to Wuhan. Both sides began to start sharpening their knives. This wasn't going to be good for Morris. And now, with Madame Sun out of the country and the songs lying low, he had to go out and find a new and steadier source of income. The Suns and songs might have liked him, but Jiang Kai-shek wasn't particularly fond of Morris Cohn. They never cozied up. Same went with Song Mei-ling, Madame Jiang. In early 1928, Sun Ke, Hu Han-min, and Si Si Wu went on a world tour to drum up support for China. Who were these guys? Well, these are all characters from the 1920s and 30s. Sun Ke, he was Sun Yat-sen's son. Because of his father, Sun Ke was a major player in the Canton government. So was Hu Han-min. He was a very complicated guy and one of the most powerful KMT leaders in the post-Sun era. Sisi Wu was the son of Wu Tingfang, a Qing dynasty diplomat and later a diplomat in the early Republican period. He was a very interesting person, and Wu Tingfang, in his capacity as minister to the United States at the turn of the century, did a lot to speak out against anti-immigration laws directed specifically against the Chinese. So Sisi Wu, he was a chip off the old block and also ended up as a diplomat. In the beginning of 1928, 
these three, with Morris Cohn in tow, started a whirlwind global tour to spread awareness about China and to get diplomatic support. And this ended up being the trip that was going to give Morris some of the importance he was pining for. Once they arrived in the UK, Morris Cohn got to visit his family briefly, first time in a very long time. They had moved up to Manchester now, and when this distinguished group from China traveled to Africa, Morris broke away. This was in March of uh, 1928, and he headed towards Zimbabwe, then called Rhodesia, to visit his sister who lived there. In one of his patented typical acts of extravagance and generosity, Morris packed his sister and family up and sent everyone first class back to England, where there was a happy reunion in the Cone family. Morris lived lavishly and showered all his relatives with gifts and regaled them with his stories from China. After a few months' absence, hanging out with the extended Cohen family, he hooked up with the group of Chinese diplomats in June 1928. They were all down in the dumps due to the tour, not working out at all. They weren't getting any face wherever they went, and rather than gaining support for the nationalist government, all they got was the cold shoulder. Their last chance was going to be in England. All the disappointment up till now would be forgotten if they could only gain government support in London. Morris Cohn, in so many words, said, hey, leave it to me. And he rushed back to London and started using his two-gun Cohn ways to line up a whole string of heavyweights to meet with the delegation. Thanks to Morris, they got to rub elbows with several MPs, plus Ramsey MacDonald, David Lloyd George, and Austin Chamberlain. Austin is not the peace in our time Chamberlain. That was his half-brother Neville. Wherever this group went, they were given maximum face, and Morris, he just went along for the ride. With these nationalist leaders enjoying the recognition from the British government leaders, Morris also got to bask in their glory. By now... Morris had made sure he was referred to as General Cohen. As far as anyone knew, he wasn't a general, or even an honorary general. But Morris Cohn didn't allow that one inconvenient truth to stop him. He was getting a lot of shine, and totally loving it. With the momentum gained from the visit to Britain, the group moved on to America next. Morris Cohn again did all the necessary advance work and made all the calls needed to marshal forces, so the UK and US visits went excellently. By the end of August, Morris was back in Hong Kong, and at last he had what he believed was the respectability he was long overdue. Up till now, Morris Cohn had struggled with his own kind to get the respect and recognition he craved so badly. This US and UK trip turned out to be a nice diplomatic coup for the nationalists, and Morris Cohen genuinely had a hand in its success. Let me read a long quote from the British Consul General about his take on Morris's 1928 trip. He said, quote, Although he is an uneducated and simple-minded person, he takes himself very seriously as a politician and close touch with the inner intrigues and activities of his Guomindang friends. For the past two years, he has regularly called on me and discussed at length on the political situation. His theme always was the revolutionary movement in China need not necessarily be anti-British, and that the British authorities could easily capture it and oust the Russians by sympathizing with the South and giving them practical help. In other words, by allowing them to procure the arms necessary for their struggle, which they could at present only get from the Russians. 
I suspect that this was not disinterested advice, as he wished to act as the Chinese agent for the purchase of arms in Canada, which would have been a lucrative business. Although Cohn undoubtedly held quite an unusual place, for a foreigner, in the confidence of the Chinese authorities in the city, I imagine they told him chiefly the things they wanted him to pass on to me, and I, of course, used him for the same purpose. Nevertheless, he has frequently given me valuable information, and has, on occasion, been of assistance in arranging matters where the Commissioner for Foreign Affairs could do nothing. Cohen is an adventurer with a shady past, and in his endeavor to obliterate his early reputation, he is inclined to exaggerate the importance of his present position and his influence with the Canton officials. But in spite of his Canadian record, I have not found him untruthful or untrustworthy. In fact, it is only fair to say that since I have known him, he has used such influence as he may possess with the Chinese authorities in the direction of restoring friendly relations with the British and helping British trade. This is in accordance with his own financial interests, as he earns commissions on purchases of British materials for government purposes and had ambitious projects regarding railway construction to be undertaken by Canadian contractors. End quote. Well, this is as good a place as any to put in the bookmark and close the curtains for now. More Moisha Tugun Cone next time as we follow his life in the post-Sun Yat-sen, Nanjing decade part of Chinese history, as well as his story during and after World War II. May I humbly invite you to become a Patreon supporter of this show? A few bucks a month, or more if you're so inclined, and get access to a whole bunch of old stories from my checkered past. I wasn't like Moisha Cohn, but I have a few stories myself. Go to patreon.com slash China History Podcast. You can also donate to the show via PayPal at paypal.me slash China History Podcast. I'll have links at the show notes for your inconvenience. That's it, ladies and gentlemen. Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles, California, thanking all of you for listening. Who? made it this far. See you next time, I hope, for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.